Our text this evening for this Good Friday service comes out of Mark's Gospel, and it's the next text up uh, in the series that we've been in on Sunday mornings for quite some time now, but it's in Mark chapter 15. We'll read from verses 33 down through the end of the chapter together this evening. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 33, and Mark writes these words, and he says, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and of Salome. And when he, was in, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came with him up to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is God's word. You know, the reason we have a Good Friday service here at Redeemer is because over the centuries, typically Protestants and evangelicals want to run right past the crucifixion to get to the resurrection on Easter Sunday morning, right? We want to celebrate with clapping hands and celebratory anthems, but we don't want to look deeply into the horrors of the crucifixion. We want to celebrate the resurrection with hope, but don't want to look squarely into the face of the horror of Jesus' death. And so tonight, and not last year uh, because of COVID, but previous years, we gather here on Good Friday to look at the crucifixion so that whenever we come here Sunday morning to celebrate the hope of the resurrection, it is deeper and fuller and more joyful. And so tonight, as we look at this passage together, I told you it would be brief, so I don't have a big, long-running introduction I want us to get straight into the text, and I want us to see one thing about how it is that Jesus died, and three things that means for us, and we'll touch on them each quickly, okay? First thing is this, I want you to see how Jesus died. He dies in utter darkness, in utter darkness. In verse 33, we're told that from 12 noon until 3 p.m., the whole land was covered in darkness. Now, darkness in the Bible, listen, it's not just a description of the physical attributes of the setting right, that they're in. It's not just a physical description of something that is seen or not seen, like the absence of light. That's what darkness is, right? Darkness isn't something in and of itself. It's just the absence of something else, which is a really deep philosophical point, which we don't have time to delve into tonight. But that's the reality, right? 
But in the Bible, darkness is always depicts a, not just a physical reality, but a spiritual reality. Something else is going on here. In fact, throughout the Scriptures, darkness oftentimes signifies the judgment of God falling upon the land. Let me give you several examples from the Scriptures in the Old Testament. First of all, you have the Passover event in Exodus chapter 10. Now, prior to the first Passover, whenever God comes to release His people out of bondage and slavery... He does so by inflicting plagues upon the nation of Egypt. And one of those plagues is an actual plague of darkness. You got it, right? Darkness falls upon the whole land of Egypt for three days. And as darkness falls upon that land, it's a representation of the land being under God's judgment or being under a curse. In fact, the prophets would pick up on this theme as well in Isaiah chapter 13 and speaking of the day of the Lord, a day in which God would come to judge the earth. Isaiah writes of it this way, he says, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Jeremiah says it this way in Jeremiah 4.28, for this the earth shall mourn. And the heavens above shall be dark, for I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. And then Amos says it this way in Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son. And the end of a bitter day. See, all of this language of darkness and judgment that surfaces in the Old Testament leading up to the Passover and prophesied about the coming day of the Lord in which God would come to judge His people and judge the land. All of this imagery that is whenever the first original audience would have read about the, at noon that becoming dark until 3 p.m. for three hours Right? You, some of the bells would have been going off in the heads of these people. This is more than just a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse or some dust storm that some would have proposed had arisen in the ancient Near East. There's all kinds of reasons why that would not have been the case here, but the reality of what's happening here in the text is that what Jesus is now dying in is in the midst of God's judgment upon sin. That's why the whole earth becomes dark. The whole land loses its light for three straight hours. Jesus is dying under God's curse. He's dying as under God's judgment against sin. That's the significance here as He dies in utter darkness. But what does that mean for you and I? It means three things. And the first one is this. I told you to be quick. The first one is this. Right? The fact that Jesus dies this way is that it reveals His identity. It reveals His identity. Listen, if the Gospel of Mark were a movie, right, the climax of the Gospel of Mark would be chapter 15, verse 39. Right? It, it would be that moment in the movie where the timpanis are roll, you know, rolling and uh, the music's crescendoing up to this real high point. Right? And then all, all of a sudden in the movie, like everything gets calm again, and there's a nice little scene that kind of the movie ends. That's what would be happening in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, whenever Jesus breathes his last, and this Roman centurion who stands there attending 
Jesus' death at the foot of the cross says this, truly, surely, this man was the Son of God. That is the climax of Mark's Gospels. What Mark has been aiming at throughout the entire account. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, at the very beginning of Mark's Gospel, the very first words Mark writes are these. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then all throughout the rest of Mark's Gospel, Jesus is called the Christ. Peter confesses Him as such in chapter 8. Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man 14 separate times throughout Mark's Gospel. But up to this point, it has only been an unclean spirit and a legion of demons who have confessed Jesus' divine identity as the Son of God. It is not until Mark 15.39 when a Roman centurion who oversaw Jesus' death, he saw Him suffer scorn and shame. He saw Him beaten to the point of losing His life. He saw Jesus refuse to dull his senses with ancient narcotics. He saw the righteous man of Psalm 22 and the suffering servant of Isaiah 50 and 53 suffer and die before his eyes. And only now does another human being say, this was the Son of God. Not until he dies. When Jesus lets out a loud cry, we're told in the text, which surely was, it is finished, as it's recorded in other of the gospel accounts, and breathes his last as if the scales from this Roman centurion's eyes and the scales from his heart are lifted and he can see Jesus for who he really is. Everything's been building to this. But why? Why is it, why is it this that lifts the scales? See, up to this point of his death, the Roman centurion, remember, he's been one of the guys who's beaten Jesus, he's spat on Jesus, he's scourged Jesus, and he's mocked Jesus. But we're told in the text that when he sees that in this way, that in this way, he breathed his last, in this way, he died, that's when the lights come on for him. And what does Mark mean by this way? Here's what I think Mark means by that. Is that in Jesus... Jesus dies in in intense suffering and with immense trusting. In intense suffering and with immense trusting. Notice the cry on the cross. He says, my God, my God. He doesn't cry out, my friends, my friends, where have you gone? He didn't cry out, my hands, my hands are writhing in pain. He didn't cry out, my feet, my feet are oozing blood. He didn't cry out, my lungs, my lungs are burning under the weight of my body as I suffocate here on the cross. That's not what he cries out. He cries out, my God, my God. But why? Because in that moment, the son was losing the father. He was losing the father. And listen, there has never been the degree of suffering that any human being on the face of this earth ever experienced, is now experiencing, or will ever experience than the intense degree of suffering Jesus experienced here. And here's why. Because of the length and the depth of love in a relationship amplifies the pain of its loss. It, turn, it turns the volume up. It pegs it out all the way to 10 or 12 or whatever the highest number is on the dial. 
right? Listen, that's why many therapists and, and, and counselors would say that the, that the loss of a spouse to death or to divorce is the, if not, is one of, if not the most traumatic experience someone can go through because the length of the love and the depth of the love amplify the degree of pain that you experience in its loss. For instance, if one of you came up to me tonight and said, Shannon, well, before you addressed me, you spat in my face and you said, I never want to see you again. That would hurt. But if when I got home, my wife did the same, it would be devastating. And listen, church, there is no love that is deeper or longer or higher than the love shared by the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father through the person of the Holy Spirit. There is no love that has lasted longer. There is no love that has run deeper. So as a result, you and I can only begin to imagine the depth of the separation, loneliness, and isolation felt by the Son when He cries out the words of Psalm 22.1, Where did you go? We just sang this very truth in the song two songs ago. Because it's in that moment, when in the, song, the, the lyrics of the song that we sang, that say this, How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away and abandons the Son to the darkness. To the judgment, to the curse that would fall upon him. No one's ever suffered this way. But no one has ever trusted this way. See, up to this point, the understanding in the Jewish mind was this, that if you obey God, things would go well for you, right? Maybe not perfectly, you have some bumps and bruises along the way, but things would go well for you. At least you would know that no matter what came against you, that God was with you. And yet here is the man who trusted perfectly. And God is not with him. And yet he trusts, even as he is condemned in the darkness. He trusts. And so when he breathes his last and cries out, it is finished, this Roman centurion says, well, surely this must be the Son of God. Jesus dying in utter darkness reveals his identity, but not only does it reveal his identity, but listen, it also unlocks personal access to the presence of God. Personal access to the presence of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I've lived over these last 12 months in a new world. And I have a new vocabulary now because of it. Two little words. Social distancing. Okay? Social distancing. Right? Six feet apart. Right? Wingspan. Don't get any closer. Right? We went that, through that whole phase of do we shake hands? Do we bump elbows? Do we give knuckles? What, what do we do? Because we're so accustomed to what? Hugging. We're so accustomed to shaking hands. We're so accustomed to the displays of affection. And then all of a sudden that got removed and we started speaking of ter in terms of social distancing and just kind of nodding the head. Hey, how's it going? Right, that kind of a thing. That's what has been introduced into our world in the, over the course of the last year. Maintaining safe space from others. 
But listen, prior to the crucifixion of Jesus, God was socially distanced from us. Spiritually distanced from us. And it wasn't because He was afraid that He was going to catch something from us. Okay? As if some kind of virus was going to be transmitted to Him or sin was going to contaminate Him. But He kept His distance all throughout the Old Testament because He knew that His presence and His holiness would consume and destroy us. His unmitigated, unfiltered presence would annihilate us. So throughout the Old Testament, the personal presence of God was quarantined from the people of God. Remember in the, in, in the garden, whenever, whenever our first parents fall, what happens when they're ushered out of the garden? There are these angels with flaming swords now there to keep them from coming back in where God would walk with them in the cool of the day. When he appears to Moses, he speaks to Moses to him through a burning bush rather than face to face. And when Moses says, I want to see the fullness of your glory, God. What does God say? You can't handle it, Moses. So he tucks him behind a rock and he passes by and he says, I'll let you see my backside glory, Moses. But if you saw my face, you would die. You would die. Right? So God socially distanced himself, right? So the reason he does this is because, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that he dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see. Yet when God delivers Israel from Egypt, right, he instructs them to do what? Build a tabernacle so that his presence could dwell among his people. Then eventually, when they came into the land, Solomon builds a temple. And in both those places, in both those places, there was still a quarantine of God's presence from God's people. So that in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where God, the Ark of the Covenant resided, where the mercy seat was, listen, only a representative of the most holy people on the face of the earth, the Jews, only the holiest representative of those people, the high priest, right, could go in on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, with a blood sacrifice to make atonement for sin. And all of that was contained behind this thick, thick, thick curtain. And yet when Jesus breathes His last and lets out this loud cry, the text says the curtain was ripped in two, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom to leave no doubt about who had done it. Right? It's not a mystery. And here's why. It's because when Jesus breathes His last and gives up His Spirit, God tears that curtain. Here's why. Because there's no longer a need for any further sacrifices to be brought inside of that curtain one day a year whose blood would be sprinkled upon the ark because the blood of Jesus was sufficient for all sin, for all time, and for all sinners. So the curtain is torn to give us access to God's personal presence. And so on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stands to preach and the Holy Spirit falls, God's presence is no longer hidden behind the veil or the curtain in a temple, but now resides in the temple of our bodies. In us. As His people. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus dies in utter darkness and in so doing unlocks access to the personal presence of God. I could preach on that for a year. But point three, 
Not only does it unlock the personal presence, access to God's personal presence and reveal his identity, but listen, it also fortifies us with courage. I can remember growing up as a child, and I I used to read the the cereal boxes as a child. I don't know about you, but we used to eat all kinds of sugary cereals, right? Lucky Charms and Fruity Pebbles, and right? Whatever had the most sugar is what I wanted. And so my daughter has inherited my genes, right? I know that she is from me because that is her, okay? But I always remember reading the mazes and everything on the back of the cereal boxes. I could tell you just about everything was on those cereal boxes. And almost exclusively on every one of those cereal boxes was this statement in some form or fashion. Fortified with 13 vitamins and minerals, right? Fortified with 13 or 11 or 12 vitamins and minerals, to make you feel better about all the hollow calories that you were consuming, right? So the fortification process, listen, it, this is what it did. It took something that was not innate in that cereal and it pressed it into it, okay? It took something that didn't occur naturally in those grains and it presses it into it. And the same is true whenever we see Jesus dying in utter darkness, that it presses a courage into us that is not natural. We're not born with it. Look at the text with me for a moment. Joseph of Arimathea, we're told that he comes, claims Jesus' body from Pilate to give him a proper burial following Jesus' death. And when he comes, we're told in the text that he took courage why would joseph need to take courage in order to come and ask for jesus body let me tell you why in john chapter 19 verses 38 and 39 we're told that joseph of arimathea was a secret disciple of jesus for fear of the jews we're also told there in that same text that he was a friend of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the same one that came to Jesus at night, asking him about, like trying to un- un- unwrap the mystery of what it means to be born again. Right? That, those same guys were there in John chapter 19. They were friends with each other. No, Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus because he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin, of the Jewish high council the same jewish high council which had convicted jesus of blasphemy and handed him over to rome to be crucified we're told in matthew chapter 27 verse 57 that joseph was a rich man right he was very wealthy he was prominent he was prestigious he had a reputation to uphold he had wealth and power in his community in luke chapter 23 verses 50 to 51 we're told that joseph was a good and righteous man and that he had not consented to the council's decision to hand jesus over in crucifixion and yet we're told here he takes courage why why would he take courage because he's got something to protect he's got a reputation to protect He's got wealth to protect. He's got power to protect. And he's got privilege to protect. He's got all these things to protect. And yet whenever he sees Jesus unjustly crucified, it it presses something into him that had not been there before. Because for Jesus to go to Pilate, all of a sudden he's out in the open. Right? Why is he sympathizing with this one who is weak when he has power? Why is he sympathizing with this one right, who, 
who has been scorned when he has reputation? Why is he sympathizing with this one who is poor when he has wealth? Because something about Jesus' death presses into him something that had not been there before. And it's courage. It's courage, church. He had been fortified with it. And it always, church, takes courage to identify with Jesus, particularly, particularly whenever you have something to lose on account of it. Now, that's another year's worth of sermons as well. But I'll say one thing. Not the 30 I could, but one. What has happened in this man's heart? Again, something that has brought him into the public and his discipleship and the way that he's following Jesus, taking his body, attending to his body. The very thing that Jesus had... When he, when he institutes the Lord's Supper in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 14, he says, this is my body, take it. Take it. It's the very thing Joseph Arimathea is coming to do, to take his body, prepare it for burial. See, when individuals like Joseph, when they have wealth and riches, when they have power and prestige, when they have reputation to uphold, so oftentimes wealth and power and privilege aren't just things that... We have, but they've become things that we are. And as a result, whenever those things are threatened, our very identity is threatened, and we don't want to put those things on the line when it means the choice between preserving ourselves or following Jesus. That's courage. Jesus dies in utter darkness. And when you look at his death, it fortifies you with the kind of courage that you need to follow him in this world. It unlocks personal access to the very presence of God. And it reveals who he really is. That's why we're here this Good Friday. To look into the horrors of the crucifixion and to understand what Jesus purchased in his redemption for us. This evening, Brian and Bethany are going to come back and they're going to lead us in one final song. And as they do, we're going to come and receive the Lord's table together. If you're a Christian in the room tonight, we're going to come and do the very thing that Joseph did. Take Jesus' body. The very thing that he admonished us to do in Mark chapter 14. Take the cup and drink it. Take the bread and eat it. And remember the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us. As He hangs on the cross in utter darkness under the full curse and judgment of God upon sin. So that we can know who He is. So that we can walk with Him. In intimacy, no longer spiritually and socially distanced, but brought close as his children. And to have the courage that we need to set foot, our feet, on the path of discipleship and following him regardless of what it costs. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing and we're going to receive the table together. Let's pray.
Father, tonight, we thank you for the person and work of your Son. As we look forward to the celebration of his resurrection on Sunday, God, we remember tonight the horrors of his crucifixion. Perhaps the greatest horror, Father, even despite the scorn and the shame, and despite the nails and the crown, the greatest horror of knowing that you, as his Father, turned your face away, forsook him, abandoned him to the utter darkness. so we would know who He really is. And so we would know who You really are. And have Your presence come to dwell within us. So that we might have courage to take our discipleship into the public square and not just in the private spheres of our lives. So tonight, Father, as we come to the table and we take of the cup signifying Jesus' blood that was shed all those years ago, as we take of the bread signifying the body of Your Son which was beaten and broken, scourged and flogged and pierced for us. May we do it remembering all that He has given. And may we do it reaffirming all that we desire to give. A life for a life. We will lay our lives down for Him as He has laid His life down for us. We pray in His name. Invite you to stand.